Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. They did that to me first service. I had no idea that was coming, so I was completely taken aback by what in the world is going on. I thought I messed something up in the order of service, so uh, I have reminded our tech team, payback is coming. So anybody that wants in on that, let me know. I'll get you involved. 1882, a guy named Mark Twain uh, wrote a book called The Prince and the Pauper. Some of you may have had to read it before. It was the classic case of mistaken identity. So the prince is out on the street and he meets this street beggar who looks just like him. And for some reason they decide, hey, let's see if we can pull off the greatest switch of all time. You become the prince, I'll become the pauper. And before you know it, the entire nation has this massive case of mistaken identity. Well, about 2,000 years ago, Dr. Luke writes about, I think, what is the biggest case of mistaken identity that the world has ever known. So just like Prince Edward in Mark Twain's novel, Jesus wasn't recognized as the king that he truly was, because if you read in scripture, who is Jesus? He's the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, and yet he strips himself of some of his deity. Now, he never gives up being God, he never gives up being deity, but he strips himself of some of his powers that he could have used as God in flesh. Instead, chooses to come as a pauper. He lets his own creation torture him. He lets his own creation abuse him. He lets his own creation murder him when he didn't have to. And why did he do it? All out of the love that he has for those that he made. Talk about a king that loves his subjects more than any that we could ever imagine. And yet his subjects didn't even recognize him as the king. The apostle John in John chapter 1 verse 11 says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was most definitely a king. He just wasn't the kind of king that they were looking for. In fact, they were completely content with Jesus giving sight to the blind, giving hearing to the deaf, enabling paralyzed people to walk, feeding a whole bunch of people free food, and then even raising the dead. They were completely content with that. And when they saw that, they probably even thought to themselves, the king that's finally going to rescue us from the bondage to the Romans, he's going to come and he's going to set us free. Jesus actually came as the king who was going to set them free, just not physical freedom from the Romans. So what was the freedom that he came to bring? Freedom from sin, freedom from hell, freedom from death. But when Jesus didn't give them what they wanted, what did they do to him? Well, this morning it's going to look like they worshipped him. Remember, they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to, to the son of David, the king. Hosanna the one who's going to rescue us, the one who's going to free us. Praise God. However, what do we find five days later? The very ones that screamed, hail him, five days later are screaming, nail him. Big change. Well, today we're going to do a little something together. We're going to start a little investigative journey. This Jesus that we follow, or maybe you're not following Jesus yet and you're just wondering, should I be following this Jesus? Let's do a little investigative research. Should we? 
For those of you that are following Jesus, is there good reason to be following him? Well, Dr. Luke starts an investigative journey. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19, but actually I'd like to start at the beginning of his gospel. In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Dr. Luke writes this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers to the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Dr. Luke is writing to this Theophilus and uh, mainly Gentile hearers in general who are probably wondering about this Jesus. Should we really be following him? Is he really a king? Is there anything different about him from any other religious leader that we've heard about? And Dr. Luke is about to show them absolutely yes. Now I'm going to pause for just a moment because I know at this moment in time you may be asking the same things that I did before I became a believer. You're telling me that Dr. Luke is about to give us this account of who this Jesus is that we should be following, but I don't believe the Bible. Great. Remember, it's awesome whenever someone says, I don't believe the Bible, at which I would always say, great, pick it up and read it, and then tell me why you don't believe it. In our Wednesday night equip courses, we dove into a couple months ago the validity of the Bible. Why can I trust the Bible? And we only put it through three tests. There's way more that we could put it through, but there's one called the truth test, there's one called the internal evidence test, and one called the external evidence test. Truth is defined as that which conforms to reality or that which is consistent with reality. The question is, is the Bible consistent with reality? And I would say in multiple areas, the answer is absolutely yes. Let's start with what we call cosmology or the beginnings or the origins of the universe. Is the Bible consistent with what we see when it comes to the origins of the universe? The answer to that is absolutely yes. We now know that the universe definitely had a beginning. Anytime something has a beginning, it has to have a beginner. In order to have a beginner, that means that we now need somebody that is infinite to bring all finite things into existence. We need somebody that's outside of time. He is timeless. He is outside of space. He is spaceless. He is outside of matter. He is powerful enough to bring all things into existence. And from everything that we know in studying scientific law, the only thing that makes sense is that everything that has a beginning has a begin beginner, or everything that has been created has a creator. The only other option that you have left is that nothing created everything. And I would ask, which is more consistent with reality? Well, then you've got the internal evidence test of the Bible, which means that it should be consistent with itself. We've discussed this before, but you all know that the Bible is 66 books put together, right? by 40 different authors in how many languages? Three on how many continents? Three, so we've got this book that is written over a period of about 1,500 years by 40 different authors in languages like Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic on the continents of Asia, Africa, and Europe over the course of about 1,560-ish years. You'd think that putting all of that together and just those things, from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22, you're gonna have some issues. And yet you don't have a single mistake. You don't have a single contradiction. That is beginning to lead me into the belief that I can actually trust what this book says. But there's one more piece of evidence or one more test, and it's called the external test. And that is, well, do what others write corroborate or they defame what the Bible says? And the answer is, they absolutely corroborate it. 
you've got writings by Egyptian historians. You've got writings by Greek historians like Tacitus. You've got writings by Jewish historians like Josephus. You've got writings by Roman writers in the Roman annals that all verify exactly what the scriptures say. And those are just three tests that we put scripture up against. And yet all three tell me that I can trust without a doubt every word that has ever been written in this book and why this book is the one book that I want to pick up and read when it comes to knowing everything I need to know about where life began, how life should be lived, and what's going to happen when this life is over. Amen? I got a lot of caffeine going this morning. This is going to be a good morning. Right now, we are taking a look at this account that Dr. Luke compiled. And we, again, we want to ask ourselves this question. When all is said and done, what is my verdict going to be on Jesus? Is he worthy of being worshipped as God and King, or should we do exactly what they did to him 2,000 years ago, crucify him and cast him aside? Well, we're going to take a look at that this morning. As you will probably remember me saying, because we say it a lot around here, when a king would show up into town, they would stand in honor and worship of who he was. Well, Jesus is in town. He's in town right now. Would you all mind just standing and joining me as we read Luke chapter 19? I'm uh, sorry, I'm making some of you stand and turn in your Bibles at the same time. Nobody get hurt. Nobody fall down. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. This gives us the triumphal entry, our God and our King coming into town. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. But when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set, it, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Gang, you can have a seat. Thanks. After reading that, I would say that my opening statement about Jesus, our big idea for the morning, is that he is absolutely God and King and worthy of all of our worship. Now, that is a big statement. 
We better be able to prove that. If you're going to make a statement like Jesus is God and King and therefore worthy of worship, do you know what we just said? Nobody else is God and nobody else is King and nobody else is worthy of worship. To make a statement like that, we need to take a look at this Jesus that's being investigated and ask ourselves, is there any evidence that Jesus is actually God and King and therefore worthy of being worshipped? Well, remember, one of the things that we've already noted is that we can trust every word that's in this book. So let's take a look at the first thing that Dr. Luke tells us about the triumphal entry of Jesus. It's really broken down nicely for us in three parts this morning. The first starts in verses 28 through 34. So look with me again at verses 28 through 34. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. The first thing that we see in those first six or seven verses is that Jesus is the all-wise, sovereign God. That word sovereign is really just a big fancy word for he is in control of all things. Now, the Mount of Olives is a hill that's really just outside of Jerusalem. It's about a one-day, a Sabbath-day journey from Jerusalem, according to Acts chapter 1. It's a place of pretty great significance as well. It was on the Mount of Olives that King David wept. He and a bunch of his faithful followers had fled from Jerusalem. They went up on the Mount of Olives because they had been fleeing from David's own son, Absalom, who wanted to kill him. Talk about a family feud. You can read all about that in 2 Samuel 15. But also according to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, this is the first place that Jesus is going to come at the second coming. He's going to appear on the Mount of Olives. He's going to split it in half, and it's going to form this huge valley. Well, before he comes the second time, this is where he enters into Jerusalem the first time, what we would call the triumphal entry or where the triumphal entry gets staged. Now, Jesus, at this point, must have paused on the Mount of Olives before he enters Jerusalem. And when he does, he looks at two of his disciples and he tells them, go on ahead of me, you're going to secure a little donkey that's already there and waiting. This fulfills just one of the 351 extremely specific prophecies that are made about Jesus. And again, this is what blows me away about our Jesus and blows me away about this book. 351 prophecies just about Jesus that are fulfilled perfectly within this book. And they're extremely specific. They're not broad. Like if I looked at you and said, I prophesy that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. I don't think most would be like, whoa, let's worship Dave. Probably not. However, these prophecies, some of the ones that we are about to take a look at in the next week or so, we're going to tell you that they are extremely specific and made about a man that happened anywhere from 500 to 1,000 years before they took place. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 is one example. By the time Zechariah chapter 9 is written, it's about 480 BC. So this is almost 500 years before Jesus comes on the scene. And Zechariah 9 9 tells us this, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous 
and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All of this really further points to Jesus being that all-wise and sovereign God. He knew all the specific details of the day. He knew he had to come riding on a donkey. He knew where the donkey was going to be. He told the disciples to go get it. Now imagine being the disciples. Hey, go get, go get this donkey that's tied up and take it back. I'm going to ride on it. Don't you think the owners might question a little bit why you're stealing their donkey? Like to us, we might think, oh, big deal. So they took a donkey. But that's like taking your car in that day. Like I'm imagining some dude shows up at my house going, hey, I need your Hyundai because the Lord needs it. I'd be like, you're a wacko and you ain't getting my Hyundai. Instead, the guy simply looks at the disciples and, and must have been okay because we don't read of any confrontation or anything. They just simply take the donkey back. Now, big question, why all the details? Why give the details of the disciples going, the donkey, where it's going to be tied up, that he came from the Mount of Olives? Well, one of the things we've already mentioned, and I'm going to give you three real quick as to why the details. The first is fulfillment of prophecy. Definitely shows that there's something different about Jesus. It identifies him as the Messiah and as God in flesh based off the prophecy that he fulfills. Secondly, it shows the power and the deity of Jesus that gets portrayed. He knew exactly, again, where this little donkey was going to be. He knew how the whole situation was going to play out. He knew what the response of the owners was going to be. He knew all of this ahead of time. One other thing to note about the deity of Jesus, I don't know if you know, but Jesus riding on a donkey that's never been ridden before actually further points to Jesus being God. The disciples probably would have recognized this because they knew the Old Testament pretty well. In Numbers chapter 19 verse 2 and Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 3, we're told that any animal that was going to be sacrificed to God could have never borne a yoke. This little donkey has never borne a yoke yet and never been ridden. So the fact that this little donkey's never been ridden, the fact that this little donkey's never borne a yoke, it's just further testimony that this is an offering to God in the flesh. Jesus is no regular human being. He is God himself, and so therefore this sacrifice of this little donkey is for God himself. Well, third, the fact that the disciples didn't even have to ask for the cult tells you that Jesus is all sovereign. He has the right to do with what he wants, with whatever he wants. Now, don't miss this here. Jesus also says something else. He says, go and tell them that the Lord has need of it. Now, we read the word Lord, and there's actually like six different words for the word Lord throughout the scriptures. We just translate it as Lord, so that's all we see. The particular usage of the word Lord here in the Greek is the word kyrios, which literally means master or sovereign master or supreme in authority or absolute ruler or controller. So Jesus says, I want you to go and I want you to tell them that the controller, the master, God himself, has need of this little donkey. Now, I want to stop for a minute and ask another question because it's kind of a paradox. He's the master, he's the Lord, but why does he have need? It says that he has need of this little donkey. Well, when I first studied that, it took me aback a little bit. I'm like, wait a minute, if God doesn't need anything, then why do you have to have the disciples go do this? Well, the word need in the Greek is the word keria. The word keria actually means use or business. And I, I was able to do some studies here and get a neat little lesson or principle from this. Jesus is saying that I actually have use or business with this little donkey. 
In other words, the things that you think you own actually belong to the Lord, and the Lord wants to do great things with them. That would even include your own body, your own mind, your spouse, your kids, your car, your house, your finances. All of those things actually belong to the Lord, not to us. And the the word that the Lord uses here is the same word that he uses with us. Hey, I have kerea for you. I have business to do with you. Well, what's that business or what's that use? To go and make his name great and to expand his kingdom. Did you know again that that's why you and I exist? You and I exist to bring God glory, make his name great, and expand his kingdom. Do you know what happens when we don't? How many of you all familiar with what happened in Genesis chapter 11? What happened in Genesis chapter 11? It's what we call the Tower of Babel. Remember, mankind was told to multiply, be fruitful, and subdue the earth. Go out and spread out. And what did they do? Well, I don't want to make God's name great. I want to make my name great, so I'm going to build this tower. It was really called a ziggurat. It was this cylindrical figure that went up to the heavens, probably because they were trying to worship a God that would suit their needs, that would make their name great. And what is the impending result of trying to make their own name great? of trying to decide what was right and wrong for themselves, in deciding that instead of following the Lord, I'm going to do my own thing, and I'm going to build a city for myself, and I'm going to build a temple for myself, and I'm going to make a name for myself. What did it do? Absolute and utter chaos and confusion. Now, we live in a day where people are trying to build their own kingdom. I will decide what is right for myself. I will decide how I want to live. I will decide what I want to do with my body when it comes to entertainment, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to how I talk, when it comes to where I live, when it comes to what I'm in charge. And what has the impending result been? Utter chaos and complete confusion. Now, I probably don't have to tell you this, but have you noticed that we live in a society that is quite confused about who they are, about why they exist? about what it is that they're supposed to be doing. Now, people might look at you and go, no, no, I know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to get up in the morning. I'm supposed to get dressed. I'm supposed to eat some breakfast. I'm supposed to go to work so I can provide for my family. And then I'm supposed to come home and eat dinner and go to bed and do it all over again. Great, why? Well, so that I can get up and I can get dressed and I can eat breakfast and I can provide for my family so that I can come home and eat dinner and go to bed and do it all over again. Great, but why? And if you begin to ask the why question, that's where people really have to stop and think, why do I exist? So many of you, that's not a bad thing, by the way, you're going to get up tomorrow morning on Monday and you're going to get dressed and you're going to eat some food and you're going to go to work and you're going to provide for your family and you're going to come home and you're going to eat dinner and you're going to go to bed. But as a follower of Jesus, why do you do those things? Well, I get up and I do those things so that I can bring honor and glory to the one who made me. Meaning that now when I eat food, I eat food to the glory of God. Well, how do you do that? Well, most of you eat things that you like, right? Usually, for the most part, things that taste fairly good. God gave us sustenance so that it could, it could sustain our bodies so that we can take care of ourselves. What if you turn that around and worship to the Lord? What if when you were driving down Paseo del Norte and everybody else is driving way too fast and cutting you off, instead of getting mad at them, you thought to yourself, that could be a person that needs Jesus, and you prayed for them. What if when you got to work, you saw yourself not just as a clerk or as a janitor 
or as a CEO, but you saw yourself as a person that is actually a follower of Jesus disguised as a clerk or as a janitor or a CEO. How would that radically affect the way that you live your life? Well, Jesus looks at these disciples and he says, hey, I got great plans for you just like I have for this little donkey. It might sound crazy, but if God can use a little donkey, guess what he can do with you? Great things. I'm going to guess that most of us are smarter than donkeys, unless you're a teenager. I have teenagers, I can say that. All the teens now hate me. I have teenagers, so that's okay, they'll, they'll get me later for that one. Jesus chooses to use this little donkey to do what? Display his glory. If Jesus can use a little donkey to display his glory, guess what he can do with us? And it's not because we're wonderful. It's not because we're fantastic. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We'll speak more to that in just a moment. He goes on in verse 35, Dr. Luke does, and he says, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Here's what we learn. Jesus is also the all-worthy sacrifice. Not only is he the all-sovereign God, but he is the all-worthy sacrifice of God. When they're spreading their cloaks out in those palm branches on the ground, this is an ancient practice of welcoming a new king into town. And then they begin to quote Psalm 118, verse 26, while they wave these palm branches. And that was a symbol of joy and a symbol of salvation. But apparently they didn't realize what they were really doing. See, they were looking for salvation from the Romans. But Jesus comes to bring them salvation from at least four other things. Sin, wrath, hell, and death. He rescues them from all of those things. Well, some of y'all, you may be praying for deliverance from something, maybe from bad health, maybe from a bad relationship, maybe from a bad job, and you're not seeing that deliverance that you've been hoping for. Lord, rescue me from this job, rescue me from this relationship, rescue me from this bad health. And Jesus may be keeping us there for a reason, and I don't know what all of those reasons might be. I can only look back at the things that I've struggled through, and I can tell you that one of the reasons that he has allowed me, I believe, to struggle is that I have a lot of friends and a lot of family members that don't yet know Jesus. And my bad health, or being in a bad relationship, or being at a bad job or whatever it may be, that's just a small taste of what hell might be like. And being the fact that I get so worked up over a sickness or I get so worked up over a bad circumstance should get me even more worked up in knowing that I have friends or I have family or I have coworkers or I have neighbors that could be spending eternity in something far worse than bad health or a bad job, or a bad relationship. I hope that spurs us on to go share the good news of Jesus. One verses 41 through 48, we read the following. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. I'm going to pause for just a moment. If Jesus showed up in Albuquerque 
Do you think he'd weep? I know he would. Do you know why I know that? Because what was happening here when he showed up in Jerusalem is the same thing that's happening here in Albuquerque, and that is that there are hundreds of thousands of people that have yet to bow their knee and trust Jesus and instead are trying to do their own thing. And it has resulted in utter chaos and confusion. Jesus looks around and he sees people in the holy city, the place where they should know all about his coming because it's been prophesied over and over again for hundreds of years of all the places that that people should know about Jesus. That should be the place. And yet there's thousands that are rejecting him and Jesus is seeing souls entering into eternity, separated from him forever. He goes on in verse 43, says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's speaking of what is about to happen in A.D. 70 when they got utterly and completely destroyed and ransacked. However, I believe he is also pointing forward to a future prophecy, letting them know that A.D. 70 is just a small taste of what is going to happen to you when the seven-year tribulation comes around. Now, I'm not playing doomsday prophet, but the things that happened to them in A.D. 70 could very well be coming our way if we don't as a nation begin to recognize who the sovereign ruler of the universe is. Okay, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that I'm making some kind of prediction about something that's going to happen in Albuquerque or the United States, but what I am telling you is that every nation that has ever turned its back on God, whether it be the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Medo-Persians or the Greeks or the Romans, any nation that has turned their back and went a whole separate way and worshipped a separate God and dove into idolatry and immorality, the impending result for every single one of them has been what? Destruction. Every single one. Are we any more special? No. Now, that being said, God has always left a remnant within those nations. Praise God, sitting in this room right now, we are, we are a part of that remnant. And that remnant is being called to something grand and glorious. And that is the expansion and the growth of his kingdom. Isn't it awesome to know that when you wake up tomorrow, you have a grand and a glorious purpose for waking up beyond Wheaties or Cheerios, beyond Paseo or Alameda, beyond going to your work and being a grump and is it coffee or is it tea this morning? You have such a far greater purpose. Isn't that a great thing to know for tomorrow morning or for today? That's exciting stuff. Now let me go on, verses 45 through 48. Now he enters the temple. By the way, it doesn't get any better for them after this. Now he goes into their place of worship, and he begins to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Doesn't that sound like the atheists and the religious people of today? The atheists don't like a Jesus that gives purpose, a Jesus that's in control, a Jesus that created, and the religious people don't like a Jesus they can't control. We want to put him in a box and make him into who we want him to be. And you may be going, wait a minute, you're a pastor preaching the Bible, aren't you religious? Absolutely not. Here's why. Do you know what religion is? Religion is man's attempt to work his way to God. A follower of Jesus recognizes they have no hope, so they're following the only one that can take them all the way to God. That's the Jesus that we worship. 
Verse 48, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. What we learn is that Jesus is not only the all-sovereign God, Jesus is not only the all-perfect sacrifice of God, but he's also the all-willing Savior as God. Again, we read that Jesus wept over the state of Jerusalem. That Greek word for wept is a bitter weeping as if someone lost a loved one. He is weeping over these lost people. The next time that somebody looks at you and says, I'd never want to follow your Jesus because he's just a judgmental God who sits in the sky looking for somebody to, sh to strike down with a lightning bolt, bring them back to this passage and remind them that Jesus weeps over their sin, that he made them, that he loves them, that he died for them, but he is not going to force them to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what is it that caused Jesus to love such fickle people? What is it that caused Jesus to love such obstinate and immoral people? Well, I've been one of them. Praise the Lord that I no longer have to look at myself anymore and go, what a wretched, nasty sinner. But instead, I actually get to look myself in the mirror and because of what Jesus did, say there's a saint. Not because of anything I've done. Hear this, hear this clearly. You can't work your way into sainthood. There aren't a certain number of steps that you can take to be sainted. In fact, the churches that get addressed by the Apostle Paul all get addressed as saints, to the, to the saints of the church in Ephesus, to the saints of the church in Rome, to the saints in the church in Galatia. Listen to this one, to the, to the saints in the church in Corinth. What a messed up bunch of people, and yet they get called saints. Why? Because of what Jesus did on their behalf. They're now looked at as perfect because of what Jesus did. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What an amazing God and Savior we serve. He comes down and rescues us when we deserve it the least. Four months ago, we celebrated Christmas. We celebrated the first coming of Jesus, born of a virgin, in lowly and humble circumstances, in a feeding trough. And we ask the question at Christmas time, who is this man? And oftentimes the verdict that people give is quite off. Hopefully we're getting a better feel for who this Jesus is, because on the heels of Resurrection Sunday, I would like to re-ask, who is this man? Because ultimately God's given us the answer. He gave us some of the answer here through the hands of Dr. Luke, so we don't have to make stuff up and end up with a case of horrible mistaken identity. Have you noticed that people are confused about who Jesus is in our culture? He is everything from someone looking to strike us dead to our celestial Santa Claus who just gives us whatever we want to just a guru to just a good teacher. Did you know that Jesus never gave us that option? 
There's no option to just look at him as a good man. He's either a complete liar and a lunatic, in the words of C.S. Lewis, or he is the Lord of the universe, but there is no in-between. So let me ask you this morning, your Jesus, the one that you serve, the one that you worship, is he the Lord of the universe, or is he a liar and a lunatic? Prayerfully, you understand and recognize he is the Lord of the universe. If you are yet to be there and not sure if Jesus really is the Lord of the universe, let me ask you to do a deep dive into the person of Jesus, the things that have been written about Jesus, and tell me what you come up with, because I tried for years to disprove the lordship and the deity of Jesus. I tried for years and years to disprove the validity of the Bible. I tried for years and years to disprove the validity of the resurrection. And you know where I ended up? On my knees, giving my life to Jesus. And I pray that that's where many of us would end up this morning. Well, that's who has come to town. The all-sovereign God of the universe, the all-worthy sacrifice, the all-willing Savior has come to town. That's who this man is. That's the one that we worship. And not only has he come to town, guess what? He's coming to town again. We don't know when, but I'm going to pray just like the Apostle John. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's what we're praying for. Let me spend a moment and just pray for us right now. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we praise you again for who you are. Lord, we take time to tell you now that we recognize that you are the all-wise sovereign God of the universe, that you are the all-worthy sacrifice who paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future, that you are the all-willing Savior who rescued us from sin, from Satan, from hell, from death. You rescued us from ourselves when we were plunging ourselves headlong into a pit. Lord, you pulled us out and you put us in a place where we are seated in the heavenly realms, that we get to be citizens in heaven, not because of anything that we've done, but because our king came and took the position of a pauper and died on a cross. And Lord, we are so thankful that that story didn't end there. But that Sunday is coming and we get to recognize and cry out, the king has come and death is defeated. Lord, we are so thankful for that. Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you for who you are. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray together. Amen. Well, the disciples were chosen and sent out to go and spread the good news of the gospel message of Jesus. And we have people in our midst that do just that on a consistent basis. One, Steve Stucker didn't know I was going to call him up this morning. I did this to him in the first service. So Steve, come up here for just a moment, if you would. If you don't know, Pastor Steve just retired officially as of last Friday after 33 years. I was going to say after 33 years of being a meteorologist, but Steve is one of those classic examples of really he is a Jesus follower disguised as a meteorologist who tells everybody he knows about Jesus. Now, first service, I was about to ask him a question, and it sounded really weird. I asked him, Steve, are you turned on? And I said, how could I not be standing next to you, Pastor Dave? <laughs> and then I quit and walked off the stage, but for some reason I still came back. So I just wanted to bring Steve up, and after 33 years of serving Jesus, like I say, as a meteorologist, as a face on TV, uh, there are many, many people that have heard the good news about who Jesus is because of Steve's time, and what a great example that is for us. I'm super excited that he's retiring because that means that we get to abuse him and use him even more around here, so that's exciting. 
So it's going to be great. But I did want to take a moment, one, and just thank him as a church body. Two, why don't we, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, just pray for Steve's next venture um, in his walk with the Lord. And uh, what a blessing it's been to get to know him. I've only known Steve for like six months. But the more I get to know Steve, I just keep telling Steve, Steve, you're like a me, just maybe two or three years older, something like that. And yes, he may be a little older than me, but he still has way better hair, which I'm completely <laughs> jealous of, so whatever. I'm going to spend a moment. Let me just pray for Brother Stephen, then I'll get ready to send us out. Lord Jesus, again, we just come before you. We thank you for our brother, uh, Lord, and just the ways that you have used him so mightily. Lord, 33 years of faithful service, Lord, not just as a meteorologist, but Lord, as an evangelist who's sharing the good news of who you are. Lord, we lift him to you. We lift each one of ourselves to you, Lord, and ask that you would use us in mighty ways. Wherever we go, whether we leave here and we go to lunch, we go home, we go to the store, we go to work tomorrow, Lord, wherever it is that we're at, may people not see us, but may, may they see our God and our King, the Lord Jesus. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for this day that you've given to us, and it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we all pray together. Amen. Amen. Brother Steve, thank you. Gang, this is the day that the Lord has made. We are going to rejoice and we are going to be glad in it. I want to continue to remind you that you have one of these that was in your bulletin that just says you've been summoned. It's our way of being able to invite people, first and foremost, to hear about Jesus, but secondly, invite them to New Covenant Church. We would love to have them next Sunday and every Sunday after. So if you want to give them this, it'll give them the pertinent information. And with that being said, just like the disciples were sent to go out and trust Jesus to do exactly what he said, I want to encourage you, when you leave this place, trust that Jesus is going to do exactly what he said, and that is to use you for his glory, which will always turn out for our good. Amen? All right, gang, have a good week. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. Have a great week.